Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 171st episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Tom Kennedy. Tom is a wealth advisor at Global Wealth Advisors, a hybrid advisory firm based in Houston, Texas, where Tom works with a base of nearly 400 clients. What's unique about Tom, though, is that he made the transition into being a financial advisor from a 10-year successful career working as a wholesaler to advisors allowing him to get intimately familiar with the advisory firms in his area and network his way to a firm that was acquiring a book of 400 clients at the exact moment that Tom was ready to make a transition. In this episode, we talk in depth about what it's like to shift from the wholesaler business to the advisory business, how the required skill set of wholesalers to meet with and talk to lots of people is a natural fit for working as an advisor as well, the way the advisory business allows for more and deeper relationships than the traditional volume of required meetings for wholesalers, the appeal of shifting into an advisory business where every year doesn't start back at $0 the way the commission-based wholesaling business does, and the real-world challenges of making a transition away from the wholesaling job that typically pay far more in the short one than what most advisory firms can feasibly offer, but why it was still appealing to Tom to make the shift anyway for its long-run potential in the advisory business. We also talk about how Tom actually made the transition itself, why he decided to get his CFP certification while he was still working as a wholesaler, the way he approached firms to interview for opportunities, how he assessed the various firms that he was coming in contact with to figure out which would be the best for him to work with as an advisor, and why even as someone with deep experience and natural skill set for business development, it was still more appealing for him to find a role where he could take over an existing book of clients and not just start developing his own client base from scratch. And be certain to listen to the end, where Tom shares why, despite the long-term earning potential of the advisory business, he found it appealing first and foremost as a change in work-life balance from the 10-year grind as a wholesaler, the biggest surprise to him in transitioning from an employee wholesaler model to becoming an independent advisor about what it really means to be an independent business owner, and the lessons that Tom incorporated into starting his advisory firm based on what he'd seen as best practices in other firms from all his wholesaling years. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Tom Kennedy. Welcome, Tom Kennedy, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I've been a listener since almost day one, so the pleasure is all mine. Awesome. Well, welcome to the I would say the other side of the microphone. I guess the other side of the the, the headset or the earbuds of uh, talking to us and sharing. And I and I know you've had a an interesting journey and and one that I am starting to see crop up more often. So I was I was really excited when I had heard a little about your story and your background too to have this discussion about the journey from wholesaling and kind of calling on all of us as advisors to jumping over to the advisory firm side and saying, you know, maybe instead of calling on some of these firms, I actually want to, I actually want to work with one of them and come over to the advisor side of the line. And, and, you know, with all of the challenge I think that are happening these days in mutual fund world, annuity world, sort of just product world overall. I know the 
the wholesaling realm has gotten a bit more challenging than it used to be as well. And so I feel like I'm seeing more wholesalers now that are making the transition to the advisor side of the industry. So just really excited to kind of hear your journey of crossing that that divide and and coming over to the advisor side and and what it looks like from your perspective having lived the wholesaler world and now living the financial advisor world. Yeah, it's been a great move. It's been about two years now. I'll tell you, I get a ton of calls almost on a daily basis from wholesalers. I think they all want to make the move, but some of them are just in tough spots to to, to make that move for, for many reasons. And the wholesaling world has changed dramatically since I first started, you know, over 10 years ago. And I, I think that trend is going to continue. You know, asset managers are struggling. I think there was nine, if I'm not mistaken, net positive active asset managers in terms of flow last year. Nine out of like, what well, I don't even know what it is, hundreds of asset managers if we scoop up like all the small to mid-sized shops in there as well. Yeah. It, it, it's crazy. And you look at the market, I mean, everything worked unless you were, you know, day trading Bitcoin, I mean, you made money. So you had fixed yeah. income in, in double digits. Yeah, the equity market's up 30%. And these asset managers are still struggling. And it's just all fee compression. And the problem when you have the fee compression as an asset manager is, you know, the portfolio managers, they're not taking a cut. The distribution channel is the one that's gonna is, is going to feel it. And it comes down to the wholesaler. So it's goals are getting bigger. Basis points are coming down and it's just getting tougher and tougher. And there's a lot of consolidation happening. I mean, look at last week. I think Leg Mason just bought Franklin or vice versa. So I think yeah. you'll see a lot more of that going on. That's an interesting point of just the ways that fee compression plays out when it shows up. You know, I think from the outside of the world, we we just sort of talk broadly around the fee compression in products, average expense ratios getting lower in, in mutual funds and ETFs across the whole asset manager complex. But then when you when you drill down within those areas, right, any particular asset manager has a lot of different expenses. There's dollars to the managers themselves, there's dollars for research, there's dollars for infrastructure and execution, and then there's dollars for distribution right wholesalers and marketing and sales and all the ways that you you get the you get these asset managers product solutions into the hands of advisors or investors and when you say you know kind of where across those areas are you going to cut well it, it's hard to cut your research because at some point you got to analyze the stuff to hopefully make good decisions and get reasonable returns it's hard to cut asset manager comp, like the fund managers themselves, because there aren't a lot of them that are good. So if you start cutting them, they're going to they're going to leave and then you don't have a, a core manager. And so you start going down the line of where the dollars can get cut and right or wrong, one of the most straightforward things that usually gets squeezed is marketing and sales and distribution and where you were living as a wholesaler. Higher thresholds to, to hit the same bonuses you used to get in the past and lower payouts on those thresholds to boot. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And I, I think a big concern too is just the velocity of money too in the industry. I mean, you don't see too many buy and hold strategies. So for a mutual fund to actually make money, you know, the money has to stay there and the assets aren't as sticky as they once were. And you have ETFs that are just getting a tremendous amount of market share. So, you know, you're starting to see, you know, traditionally wholesalers are paid off of basis points. It's, there's no trails. There's no assets under management. It's just all up front. It's basis points. And you're starting to see a more 
base compensation structure where more of a consultative approach for wholesalers. I think BlackRock is, is, is doing one of those right now. And it's not so much, hey, we're going to pay you on basis points and money coming in. We're going to pay you more on, hey, here's an annual salary and you know here's your goal. And, and that's kind of what I think the landscape is going to look like going forward and what it's starting to change like. And you're also starting to see some of these asset managers implement net business. So if you have, you know, a hundred million coming in, in your territory, but you have a hundred million going out, you know, you're net zero. So the firm doesn't make money. So in turn, you're not making money. And that's just, it's just out of your control. I mean, you can't, you can only control so much and you also live and die by performance of, of your mutual funds. So just so I'm clear, cause I, I, you know, I think for a lot of advisors, we still don't necessarily actually know how, how wholesaling works and how wholesaling is, is, is compensated. So when you talk about traditionally wholesalers getting paid basis points on flows that's that's not our version of basis points in advisor world which we usually think of as assets under management basis points for ongoing assets that we that we manage on the wholesaling side basis points is just on upfront gross inflows like your territory brought in a hundred million dollars of new assets so I'm going to get paid some number on that of of basis points. So like, here's your bonus based on $100 million of net flows into your territory. Correct. So there's so there's no trails. And, you know, the, the, the worst day for a wholesaler is January 1st because you're back at zero. <laughs> and, and you look back and yeah. it's like, man, you think about all the meetings you did and, you know, all the struggle you had trying to get business in and now you got to do that again, probably times two. So it's a challenge and it, it, it wears on you after a while. And can you give context? Is there a, is there at least a typical range of what the basis points are that wholesalers typically get paid or compensated on flows? Like I, I think for us, we just have no context of like, is this like two or three basis points when a hundred million dollars of flows comes into your territory? Is it like ten basis points? Is it like where does where does that number sit? Yeah, it's a good question, and it obviously varies by firm. I mean, your top tier sure. one firms. You know, they. I think most advisors don't realize how much most wholesalers actually do make. I think it's understated, and you know, it, depending, you know, it, every firm's different. Some firms pay on certain funds. Some firms pay on certain firms that you bring it in. Just kind of where they're trying to gain market share and attract business. But you know, it, it can go anywhere from you know one or two basis points up to twenty to I've seen as high as twenty five basis points. So. You know, and, and the firm has a has a budget each year for wholesalers. So sometimes they just mistake goals. You know, if the, if it's say, hey, we're paying you ten basis points, we think we're going to bring in three billion in sales, but we end up bringing five. It's a big issue from top down from distribution because they just paid out wholesalers a ton of money that they didn't plan for. So next year. <laughs> So next year, that bar is going higher, man. It's going higher, and you know, I, you know, the best analogy, you know, wholesalers are like running backs in the NFL. I think the average lifespan is like three point three years, and you know, if a wholesaler makes you know four hundred thousand dollars, they're spending four fifty that year. I don't know what it is. <laughs> you know, I was somewhat guilty of that as well, but they just it's money in, money out, and they don't realize that next year it it's it changes it goes up and down so you really have to manage that cash flow and just because you made x one year you probably aren't going to make it next year so that's the one downfall is you just it's very unpredictable of what your income is going to be because 90% of that income is based off of that flow coming in and and so from a wholesaler end then you end out with 
a territory, some geographic territory, and the deal becomes like whatever flows come in from this territory that you've got, you're going to get comped on those in that territory. That's is that usually the gist? Correct. Yep. You're going to have a territory. And again, depending on the firm, I mean, you could have, you know, typically there's about, you know, 30 to 60 wholesalers, you know, covering the country. They usually split it up into different channels. So maybe some will take the wirehouses and then the, and then one person will take the independents, the RIAs, banks, et cetera. And you have that territory and whatever comes in that territory, you are going to, you're going to get paid off of. And, and so then I imagine well, on the one hand, some territories probably become more appealing than others because there's just more firms and more density and more flows that are probably coming in even from the people that you don't necessarily get to see, but they're in your territory and you get credit. And on the flip side, territories then vary in their size accordingly. So, you know, someone's probably just got New York City or one borough of New York City and someone else has like Minnesota, all of the Dakotas and most of the Midwest as well, because that's actually the same number of people across five or six states as it might be just to have a borough of New York because of the density. Right. You know, they tried to level it out, but it's almost impossible to do. And, you know, I, you get a lot of what I used to call hit by pitch, just an advisor you never met with, but your fund screens out and, you know, they give you an allocation and, and, you know, a lot of that happens. You know, they, they have a thing, it's industry-wide, it's called market metrics, and they basically can see down to an office level how much mutual fund business your office is doing, and all wholesalers have access to it. So from the manager's perspective, they have an idea of the market share, how much mutual fund business is in certain territories. So that's how they start to divide up the states and the cities and say, okay, we're going to try to make this as even as possible, but... It just it's very hard to, to to judge that, and some wholesalers. I mean, the delta is is pretty wide between the top earner at a firm and the and the and the and the and the low one. It's it's wide. I mean, you're talking sometimes six seven hundred thousand dollars wide. So, uh, between what what like what the top wholesaler at a firm makes and what the bottom wholesaler at even the same firm uh, representing the same funds may be making, just because of the. The territory they've got and, and and as well as obviously or hopefully how well they're doing in their territory to just actually right. build relationships and draw flows. Yep. And so so even when you just talk about numbers like the range could be six or seven hundred thousand dollars from the top or the bottom. So as you said, an advisor rule, we don't necessarily have much context on what wholesalers actually typically make. Like what kinds of numbers or ranges are are realistic like you know i mean I, as you said i could be getting paid anywhere from a basis point or two up to 25 bips i'm sure that varies by product and also just by by volume but what what kinds of numbers are typical i guess for either flows that an advisor might have in a territory i mean at the end of the day is it typical to have multi-hundred million dollar territories billion dollar territories and what does this stuff typically add up to at the end of the day yeah, I mean the the flows just again just just range. I mean you do have some territories that are are doing over a billion dollars in flows. Some of the, the 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 big companies, and then you have some territories that might be doing a hundred million. But I would say the typical salary, it's probably between on the on the very low end two hundred, and on the high end, I mean you have guys that have made over a million dollars. 
I would say the eighty percent would probably fit between like the two fifty and maybe three fifty four hundred. Okay, which is interesting to me, both just sort of understanding like the you know, the costs and dollars it takes to distribute mutual funds in a in a very competitive world, but also to me because that has really interesting implications around wholesalers that are looking to make a shift to the financial advisor world because. As you noted, like the challenge in wholesaling world, and even the challenge historically in advisor world, is is the is, I call it the tyranny of waking up every January first and you are back at zero. I mean, even even advisor commission world, I think typically gives a little bit more in trails than what wholesalers usually get, right. which is like a hard zero every year. And I think it's one of the things that shifted advisors into the assets under management world in the first place because of that recurring revenue model and that at some point you've accumulated your client base and you wake up on January 1st and there's a bunch of revenue already from clients you've got. You just have to not screw it up and you know, give them off awesome service and awesome financial advice and make sure that they stay on board. But the challenge for financial advisors is going from commissions to fees is difficult. Right? If I'm used to selling like a $100,000 mutual fund and getting a 4% upfront on an A share, and and I you know I used to get five or six percent twenty years ago, yeah, but I'm used to getting four percent, so I make four thousand dollars in the next week or two on this hundred thousand dollar client. And instead, I go to a, a fee based environment, and I'm getting paid one percent a year on a quarterly basis. Three months from now, with my first quarterly billing, I'll get two hundred and fifty bucks instead of four thousand dollars. And right, like just from a household expenses and like. I cannot do that all at once if I am used to the dollars that come from the from the commission side and that's how I'm paying my bills. Like you have to do that more gradually or you can blow up your business or be unable to make payroll or be able to be unable to pay your mortgage. And there's a similar challenge I would imagine that you were looking at coming from the world of wholesaling into the world of financial advising as well, which is, you know, you don't see a lot of starting salaries at advisory firms that start at 250k plus. You can get there building a client base. There are advisors that go much higher than that building a client base, but that takes years of building and so you get that similar kind of transition challenge, not transitioning your practice from commissions to fees per se, but transitioning your practice from wholesaling to the advisor world that at least is usually not 100% upfront at very many firms any, anymore. Yeah, and, and and that was the the biggest challenge. So this decision didn't happen overnight because it just financially couldn't. I couldn't just wake up and say, you know what, I'm sick of this wholesaling gig. Let me leave and go make almost nothing for two years. You know, this was this was well planned out, and you know, you know, it had to be financially. And I, I can tell you right now, the reason why more wholesalers don't make this move is because. You know they have families and they're accustomed to making a certain amount, and you can't just leave and say, "Hey, okay, maybe I'll try to join a team and they can pay me a small amount, maybe fifty, seventy-five thousand, and I can try to grow my book and work theirs or whatever the structure you do." It's just, it just doesn't happen because wholesalers, again, I don't know why they just have a problem saving their money, and the money they do have saved is all is all qualified assets. So yeah. I think that is it, it, it. It's a challenge, and you know, for me, it was easy. I, I'm single. I don't have a family. So, and I can honestly say, if I did, I really don't know if I could have made this move. But for me to tighten the belt, I mean, it it, it wasn't hard. Yeah. Well, it's you know, it 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 strikes me. I mean, there's 
again, there, there's fascinating parallels to me between the dynamics of the wholesaling world and just sort of what firms do to keep people on board in commission-based environments. And frankly, like what what I've watched in the advisor world over the past 20 plus years, you know, it's it's I think less so today, but when I was coming into the industry, it was very like managers that were hiring advisors really liked people with young families because if you had a mortgage and kids, you were going to go out there and sell. You were extremely motivated <laughs> because you had like you had to make your mortgage. Unfortunately, that usually drove a lot of people with very desperate financial situations who made a lot of bad sales to clients. A lot of problems with that. But I mean, I I knew sales managers out there, like their dream was to find people with a whole bunch of family obligations because they would become so financially bound up and had absolutely no financial flexibility that they would have to come in and try to rely on commissions. They were extremely incentivized for it because they wanted to keep a roof over their family's heads. And they could never leave because they couldn't afford to ever take a step off the treadmill to even try to move into a different channel or do something different because they had so much of that personal expense overhead looming over them. And and that either by deliberate design or just by culture, still seems to be often what happens in commission-based environments, right? If, if, I'm a, if I'm a firm hiring a bunch of commission-based folks, whether it's on the advisor side or the wholesaling side, the worst thing that I can do from a business perspective is encourage really prudent managed household spending at home. Right. Because then you're going to save a ton of money and you can leave yeah. my job anytime you want, right? <laughs> like I want to I want to create a sales culture Put the people who are you know big hitters and big spenders up on the podium and show that you know these are the the people you want to exemplify towards because the more they bring in and the more they spend, the more they have to stay kind of addicted to it and and can't make a change. Not specifically trying to call out any particular firm for for sort of the this slightly Machiavellian strategy, but I I do know firms out there for a fact that that do this. Like it is part of the process of managing people in a commission-based environment. And if you are in the commission-based environment and you don't realize the game that's getting played and you get caught up in the game, you end out in this position that you're talking about, or like I make great money, I spend all of it because you know that's what everybody else does where I am. And and then you realize like there's no way to make a change. You can never make a change because you can't afford to take one step backwards to hopefully take two steps forward in the long run. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's a great point you bring up. There's a, a book called Question-Based Selling, and they have an analogy. It's the uh, German Shepherd or gold medal. And, you know, who are you going to run faster for? And it's this this fear-driven culture about the commission is just, just keep working so you can keep a roof over your head and feed your family. And it's, it's the opposite with wholesaling. They can get they can get kind of complacent and they're happy and they know that they hopefully have a job. And even if they don't sell that much, they're going to be making a couple hundred thousand dollars, which is a great salary to be making. So I, I think they just get so caught up. And, you know, what I hear a lot from wholesalers is like, I'm going to make this move, but you know, I don't want to do it before a recession. And there's just, there's always a way to justify not making the move. Yeah. you can. Once you can't handle that transition, there is a never ending list of I was going to say excuses, but that's not fair. Just like rationalizations that you can tell yourself about why now is never the time. 
until it's three or five or 10 years later and you're burning yourself out. And, and now is never the time. Like it's never a good time. It's kind of like folks out there that have you know, started family and having kids, you know, kids are a wonderful blessing and an incredible life disruption. Like there was never a good time to introduce children <laughs> into your life. There's never like a convenient point where everything is really calm in your career and the rest. You can be like, hey, we're kind of bored right now. Let's have some kids and mix it up a little. Like there's never a good time. At some point, you just have to take the leap. Right, right. <laughs> I am struck though as well, because yeah, like this is something even that that hit me personally a bunch of years ago. The dynamics of when you do save, you know, everything out there these days is you you get you take your tax advantages and you save in your tax qualified accounts, right? You put in your 401k plan or your or your IRA and all the different preferential accounts we've got. And look, you know, I, I can do the math as well as anyone about the value of tax deferred compounding growth in the long run. But from the perspective of someone that's looking at making a leap, making a shift, starting a new business, like an advisory business. Tying up your dollars in qualified tax qualified accounts doesn't work. You can't get the dollars when you need them to actually make your career shift. You know, like even even for me, uh, I got to a point about ten years ago when I started doing more in in the world of being entrepreneurial and starting businesses. Like I stopped contributing to all of my employer retirement accounts. Got some dollars in there because of what I saved early on, but I basically stopped contributing because it was tying up dollars that I need to be able to make improvements in my career now by starting businesses or changing firms or originally taking the leap to to start the Nerds Eye View blog and all of the content that we do. And I couldn't do that by tying dollars up inside of tax-qualified plans. Like it needed to be outside so that you're actually flexible with it. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I think wholesalers, you know, most of them max out their 401k and some will even take advantage of, you know, the after-tax buckets. Most of them, you know, do have it at the asset management firms. So they feel that that's, you know, a good amount and it probably is, you know, that they're saving. So anything they're taking home after that is just kind of spent. So there's no non-qualified, you know, brokerage account that they're putting money into. And, you know, I, I was kind of the same way and until the end where I realized I needed to make this move and started saving up, which is what I did. But, you know, I had to make some sacrifices too. I had to sell my house, not because I couldn't afford the mortgage if I made this move, but I, I needed to pull the equity out to help, yep. you know, float me. So in the long run, this was the big picture for me. So I didn't mind sacrificing, you know, two or three years to, you know, start this business. And I'm glad I did it. I, I mean, I wish I did it earlier. Yeah, it's it's an interesting dynamic that as much as we talk about you know, the 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 importance of financial planning and 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 kind of getting your your financial house in order you, for our clients around you know if if you want to save for the long run and be able to retire you need to spend less than you make and save in various ways and and here's all these tax qualified accounts to do it that to me there's a broader piece of it which is just kind of your your job mobility like your flexibility to change jobs careers industry channels tracks from employee to independent, like just all the different ways that people make shifts and changes in, in the industry. And that being able to manage your household expenses to spend less than you make and be able to accumulate savings isn't just about saving for retirement, which ultimately matters in the long run. There's a you know, a more short to intermediate term impact, I think, particularly when we're still in our 20s, 30s, and 40s and have a, a pretty long career time horizon left, heck, even in your 50s with medical advances now, that like building up savings is also just about your ability to change careers and find something that might take 
one step back to take two steps forward, as you put it, like sacrifice two or three years to have 20 to 30 years in a great advisory career. And, you know, all this stuff around managing your household expenses and spend less than you make and save more dollars isn't just a function of retirement. It's a function of being able to reinvest into your career to make these kinds of shifts, to be able to make these kinds of shifts in the first place. Yeah, no, it's it's such a good point. And it's something I talk to clients about too, is, you know, it's maybe not the best idea that, you know, again, just like you said, we can talk to our blue in the face about the advantages of tax deferral and, and compounding, but it's also nice to have access to this money too, if you needed to make a change or to, you know, take on another investment opportunity. And it's something that I kind of didn't learn the hard way because I started saving, but I just wished I saved a little bit sooner because most of my assets are tied into my qualified accounts as well. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about kind of the transition itself. At what point did you make the decision that you were going to to transition and say like, I just, I don't want to be on the wholesaler side of things anymore. I actually want to be on the side of the advisors that I've been calling on. Was there a particular like moment or transition or trigger event? I can tell you the exact minute it happened. I was, you know, I mean, it progressed over time, but I was, I had to do an event. It was West Texas. I don't even remember what the town was. I had to drive there. It was a four hour drive. I forgot about the events. I went there to go help sponsor the events and the assistant got the date wrong. So I went all the way out there. Uh, I didn't want to drive back four hours. (laughs) You, you took a four hour drive into the middle of West Texas to support an event and they'd given you the wrong date. They had given me the wrong date. I won't mention the firm. And it was, I mean, this town, I mean, we were in West Texas. I mean, it's, it's like a hundred years back in time. And uh, (laughs) so like all the, I'm like, I'm an East coaster born and raised. Like when I think of rural West Texas, like I'm thinking of literally tumbleweed blowing across the road. Is that actually a fair characterization? I'm pretty sure one hit my car when I was sitting there debating on whether I should drive back or not, or get a hotel. I ended up getting a hotel because I was so frustrated. Like, let me get a drink, cool off, sleep it off. and just drive back. And I'm sitting on like a, some rundown motel on the bed, staring at the wall. Like, what am I doing? I need to make a change. And that was like the, that was like the final moment and, you know, but leading up to that, it's just, it's tough. You know, when I started doing it in my mid twenties, it was great. It was a fantastic job. You're making good money. You know, you're out entertaining, you're having a good time, but you know, you can only have so many steak dinners and it's just, it's not fulfilling. You know, you look back and it's like, you know, what have I done? You know, hopefully you're indirectly helping clients, you know, you're, you're positioning advisors with good mutual funds, which in turn help their clients and their portfolios and they grow, but there's no way to really measure that. And you start at zero. The biggest thing about wholesaling is you're just constantly afraid of losing your job because you have no control. You're only as good as your, as your last day in sales and it doesn't matter how hard you're working, how well you're doing. If the asset managers are, are having a tough time with with flow and they need to cut heads, I mean, you just have, and, you know, like we said about any industry, it's, just, it's a scary thought having no equity in, in something and you could just lose your job overnight and just starting over at zero. And yeah, it strikes me as well that part of that is also the challenge of just the whole mutual fund world kind of in just structural net outflows, like not not trying to bash them, just the math is the math. You know, if the total dollars in mutual funds are in net decline, 
you know, all the money around it, all the jobs around it are going to be in net decline. And so just, you know, at, at, at some point it, it, it gets a little hunger games ish about like, there's only a few that are going to be left standing when by definition there, there, there have to be fewer wholesalers in total because there's just fewer dollars moving around and in play in the first place. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think there's, I think advisors are relying less and less on, on wholesalers. And I don't necessarily agree with that, but that's just the way it is. And I think, I think that there's a lot of reasons for that. One is just, you know, there's more available at your fingertips for research and, you know, advisors are using different strategies or they're, you know, using third parties and, you know, wholesalers. It's not as relationship driven, I think, as when I at least first started. And, you look at active management too. You look at any large cap growth fund. I mean, they're all within, you know, 20 basis points on a 10 year number if it's a decent fund family. So it's really hard to differentiate yourself and, you know, not being as relationship driven and what you can and can't do in the industry is getting tougher that it's kind of starting to weed out, you know, some of the roles of, of how, you know, what wholesalers play. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been fascinating to me to see the, the shift as well that, I mean, I can feel it from the advisor in you, the just, the number of wholesalers that call in our firm is is frankly kind of an ungodly amount in the aggregate. I, I feel like particularly in the RIA channel, because our, our data is all public, <laughs> like it's all on an ADV, you know, you know right. exactly where we are and how to find us and who the people are and what the asset dollars are. And if you track those ADV updates over any period of time, you can you can see who's growing and what and where it is. And so, you know, for for firms that are that are doing well, that are sizable or fast growing or or both, they just get targeted pretty pretty squarely by by the wholesalers i mean i i like i kid you not i just look at my inbound email for our advisory firm and i'm not even in in a you know direct investment team role anymore the way that i was in the past i'm like i literally get 20 to 30 wholesaler inquiries every week like it is it is probably three to six a day every day all week all year long, like I couldn't even cordially decline all of them <laughs> because there's not like there's not even enough time to do that. If uh, you know, if it took two or three minutes just to decline every wholesaler inquiry over the span of the year, I would spend fifty hours a year just declining people. And that kind of onslaught of inbound wholesalers, combined with as you noted the the tools that are out there all the different analytics tools that are out there, even when folks break through, like I'll admit our, our most common response to if someone actually does get through is basically, yep, we know you're out there. If you come up on our screens and we're looking for you, we we will give you a call when we have questions. Like I, I promise. And we do. We, we, when, when we've got deep questions and we want to get into something further, you know, I, I'm actually a big fan of what good wholesalers can provide and can still provide in today's environment. Like, you know your products better than we do or we ever will. You know, you see a lot about how other people are using and positioning it that we don't. And so I think there's a lot of value still that that wholesalers play, but it's still way more of a don't call us, we'll call you, which to your point earlier, just takes even less control. Like it gives the wholesaler even less control in a world where it's already challenging that you have very limited control over what you're doing. No, and and the teams like you, the ones that you want to be in front of, that's exactly the response. And you can't blame them. It makes sense. And, you know, the ones that will take meetings are, you know, typically the advisors that, 
you know, they're not probably not growing in size. They're not going to move a lot, move around a lot of assets. Sometimes I don't even know why they take the meetings, to be honest. But it's 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 a crazy and ever ending circle. <laughs> well, you were you're buying lunch, man. That's why. Right. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll, t- I'll, take a, I'll take a good free lunch. I didn't have anything else going on in that hour. <laughs> hey, hate to say it, but I'm, I'm I'm pretty sure there's a little of that that goes on out there. Oh, I'm, there definitely is. <laughs> so you've got this. Arduous drive out to middle of West Texas, four hours, show up, find out nothing's going on but the tumbleweed. Have your like moment of realization staring at the wall. I can't keep doing this and I need to make a change. So so what comes next? Right. I I'm I'm sure there are plenty of other wholesalers out there who have had some similar experience of a horrible event or interaction and and having that moment of why on earth am I doing this? Like we all have those moments in our careers from time to time, but ultimately you'd like you translate into action. So like what came next in the, the thought process or the process for you, as you said, okay, I think I got to make a change. Yeah. You know, leading up to that, you know, I was coming off, you know, record after record year, I was doing well and it was just, I mean, it was just nonstop top down from management to keep pushing, pushing, pushing. So, you know, about two years prior to that, I had about a year and a half prior to that, I started my CFP. I knew eventually I was going to make this move and I wanted to, you know, have as much credential as possible when I did it. And I'm glad I did it. So I had started that and I had started talking to different teams that I respected, that I liked, that I thought if, hey, I was going to make this move, I would want to join them. So there was probably about five different teams that I had on the list that we've had conversations about. I let them know that, you know, eventually I want to make this move. I don't know when, what it looks like. I'm new to structuring these deals and there's a lot of different ways to do it. And, you know, we started just kind of addressing the conversations. And when that day happened, that was when I was like, okay, I need to get this going quicker. So it was kind of, I kind of got lucky. The team that I ended up joining had just purchased a book. So that's when all the numbers made sense. And that's when I was like, I'm ready for this to happen. And we sat down and had a formal conversation. And, you know, cause I've had conversations in the past and the numbers just weren't there. You know, I, I wasn't looking for income. I was looking for equity. If I wanted income, I would have stayed wholesale. So I made that very clear to all the teams that I, that I was talking to. That's an interesting point that just, you know, if, if all you wanted was opportunities for big income, like you, you can do that where you are, particularly if you're coming from the wholesaler world, the, the appeal of shifting to the advisor channel isn't necessarily just the raw income dollars. Cause frankly, it would be hard for most firms to come close to matching what wholesalers do. It's, it's the recurring revenue. It's literally what you build over time and it, and it's the other conceptual or literal equity that goes with it that becomes appealing to to move away from the the great income you can already make as a wholesaler right and you know the couple teams that I, I i spoke to it's okay let's talk about a small small salary which was fine but you know we don't have much as far as equity you're gonna have to just you know build your book we can you know we have some maybe some clients a smaller portion of our book you can start to work and i just you know, it, it just reminded, it was just too much, not cold calling, but just too, I didn't have a base to work off of. So it just, I didn't want to go that route. I wasn't the guy that was going to become a financial advisor and then, 
you know, I'm from New Jersey originally, call all my friends and family. Hey guys, you know, I'm a financial advisor now. <laughs> what are you doing with, with, with your finances? You know, I never wanted to be that, that guy. So I was waiting for the right opportunity. And when this, one of the teams I was talking to that I'm on today approached me, it all, it all just worked out perfectly. Interesting. So there's a few interesting striking pieces to me around that. The, the first is just, you know, the, the cool thing in your world because of what you were doing, I find for a lot of advisors that want to make some kind of shift, change channels, come into the industry as a career changer, finding a firm to talk to that are, are, are reasonable people and get to know them enough to find out that they they do good stuff. They're, you know, they're they're one of the good advisors. That in and of itself is incredibly challenging and time-consuming and arduous and still fraught with uncertainty about whether you're actually gonna find a good firm or not. Whereas you live in a world where your job literally is to call all of these firms <laughs> and meet them. You, I would imagine, know more of the landscape of the firms in the area and who's doing good work for clients and who's growing well and who's retaining their advisors as an indicator of a positive environment. Like, I would imagine you see that pretty much more than anybody else out there to know who the good firms are to talk to. Yeah. I mean, that was the huge advantage I had, you know, doing averaging maybe four to six meetings a day for 10 years. I mean, I know everybody in town as far as financial advisors and you start to see, you know, a common trend with the good teams and the not so good teams and also the good firms. And, you know, I always said there, outside of going completely RIA, there were two broker dealers I would have joined. And one of them was the one that I'm at right now. So it was kind of just, it just all fell in place pretty nicely for me. And it was great timing. Yeah. I love that that point that just you see so much more of the firms in the area to figure out who to talk to because you're naturally doing it for your job anyways. And and then the piece around, I guess, as you had put it earlier, the the math of it and making the math work, you know, obviously you have a, particularly for successful wholesalers like you, like you have a track record of doing business development. So it's not like you can't come up with a way to go out there and find clients when the when the time comes. Your experience at this probably more so than the overwhelming majority of advisors themselves. But it doesn't necessarily mean it feels good to start over completely from scratch. At least in a wholesaling environment, you do have a territory and existing relationships, even if the income are sets every January 1st. And going the advisor world cold is is still pretty cold. So like this, this pairing to me, I'm I'm fascinated by of so the firm had just purchased a book, needed an advisor to service those clients, which means you don't have to necessarily start from zero. There's revenue there. So there's some means to pay you a a reasonable salary coming in that doesn't have to be contingent on business development because someone's got to service those clients anyways. And that isn't necessarily your end point, because as you said, you you want to grow and you want to build equity, but it gives a base which makes that transition, I would think, a, a lot easier, both mentally and just the math of the dollars and the compensation. Yeah, it, it was more of just the base of clients to call on because I was I was prepared to make no income for two years. I was set for that. I was, you know, set the bar really low and we, you know, they paid me a, a small base 
So kind of how we structured the deal, the book we bought, we did it over two years. So after two years, it was ours. So they said, you know, work it for two years. After two years, you know, you'll vest in that book and you'll always work that book. Those will be your clients and they'll have a small portion of that as a percentage. So, you know, that's, you know, we purchased a lot of households. It was 400 households. So that's all I needed. Just give me people to call. Well, that's a big number. Like that's a yeah. That's a lot of people to call. It's a lot of people to call. I mean, very small accounts, but a lot of people to call, which was which was good because one, I can start to you know learn the business. I can start doing meetings, which is what I need to do, and I have people to call on, and that's all I needed. And you know, I was comfortable and confident enough in myself that it's just just getting in front of people. It's no different from wholesaling. I mean, the learning curve was, I mean, small. I mean, we're talking weeks. The CFP helped uh, mm. a lot. Uh, just because, you know, you go really wide and an inch deep, but it makes it conversational, at least on, you know, almost all topics. So, you know, meeting with these people and, you know, just finding additional assets outside and the clients that we bought, you know, they haven't met with an advisor in three or four years. So there was a lot of also low hanging fruit out there as well. So it was really nice just to have a base to work off of the income I knew would come that I wasn't worried about that It was more just having people to call because if you said, Hey, okay, you're now an advisor, you know, go. I wouldn't even know where to start and yeah. who to call. <laughs> right. And interesting. So so I, I'm guessing then like the firm was basically purchasing uh, what I'm going to assume was a fairly traditional, call it old school brokers kind of book, just a broker who had called on a zillion people over 10, 20, 30 years of their career. So they had the 400 clients, probably 300 of whom they hadn't talked to in years. But, you know, there are accounts there. There are some dollars there. People will take those calls because they did have an existing relationship with the former advisor. And that was the base that you were building on. Correct. It was a Dave Ramsey following. So they were great clients to work with because they were out of debt. They all owned a lot of all their portfolios looked very similar. So it was it was easy to to do the meetings and the advisor she that we bought off her, she's she's great. I think she just took on a little too much at once. And, you know, she had to she was doing disservice to some of these clients by not meeting with them. And it wasn't her fault. She just had so many clients that she had to to downsize. Yeah. I mean, just that's a that's a huge number. I mean, if you literally just do if you tried to do a meeting a year with all of them when it takes an hour or two for the meeting, because you're only talking once a year and and a little bit of prep time to go with it and scheduling and all the rest, like you could more than obliterate the entire year just trying to meet with those people once a year when you multiplied across 400 households and a couple hours per client in total for all the different prep work, meeting and post-meeting work that goes with it. Like the math just doesn't work, but it's a good illustration. Like her, her quote, C clients that she didn't have enough time to handle were amazing A clients for you to call on and starting your business. Absolutely. You know, there were just a lot of just small accounts, 529s here, small Roths. So it was just a nice, and there were, and there were mostly, there were a lot of younger clients too, which also helped, you know, I'm, I'm 35. So, you know, you can relate I mean, when you're talking to someone your age or a little bit older, it's much easier than talking to someone, you know, 30 years your age. So it was a, definitely a good starting book for me. So talk to us about just the financial transition of what it still takes to do this. Like at the end of the day, how much did your 
income crash in the first year from what you used to do in wholesaling world to what you were suddenly doing first year out as an advisor calling on you know this book of 400 clients trying to find whatever opportunities you can find yeah i mean it went from, i mean it pretty much went to zero i mean it, it crashed you know when i was talking to my partner and you know he's never done this i've never done this so it's like well what's a fair salary for you i'm like i don't know i don't want to i don't want you to get the bad in the deal i don't want to get the bad in the deal and it was something as silly as like well what are your fixed expenses every month? And I gave him the number and he's like, okay, that's your salary. I'm like, okay, that, you know, that sounds good to me. And then, you know, we had a deal where after these two years, then we vest and whatever that, you know, accounts at, you know, I have a percentage of that. And we grew that book a good amount from when we took it over just by referrals and rollovers that were just advised, you know, clients that haven't met with advisors or, recently changed jobs. So it was a really good, good opportunity. So the income was really bad at first, but it, it picked up. So help me understand a little bit more of just the, the way this got structured. So in essence, you, you got a base salary, which was, you know, t- tell me your fixed overhead expenses. Okay. I'll cover that. So at least like you're, you're, you're covered and not starving. Although again, I think yes, again, that makes the point of the the higher your fixed expenses, the harder it's going to be to find someone who's even willing to cover your base expenses. The lower your fixed expenses are, the easier it is to get a firm to at least say, I'll cover your fixed expenses while you do this. So you had like a base salary to cover some of the fixed expenses. And then how did the rest of this work? Like you got just the salary for two years. And then after two years that you say, okay, let's see what the ongoing revenue is and you'll get a percentage of that. Or were you participating in it along the way as well? Like how did the rest of this comp come together? Yeah. So basically any referrals that we got off this book went kind of back into that book. And then after it was paid off, which was paid off early because it, the other half was through an earnout, And once that was fully paid off, then I would have a vested interest. So we have a split code with my ID and his ID, and I have a certain percentage in my favor off that. And, you know, my job is that's, those are my clients. I service those clients. I work those clients and, you know, my advisor, my partner is going to have a percentage of that, you know, going forward. So it was, you know, so, you know, he, he put the risk out at first and then, you know, I'm paying him back over time for, you know, giving me the shot and the opportunity to, to come in. Oh, okay. So I understand. So the, in essence, the, over the first two years, you're getting your base salary and only your base salary because at the end of the day, they just bought this book of clients. So like there's a there's a third hand in the cookie jar here, which is the the advisor who sold the 400 clients who also expects to get paid. So the growth opportunities and the new revenue that got generated for the first two years went back to accelerate the payoff of that purchase so that from the firm owner's perspective, they could be free and clear on this book of clients that got purchased after two years old owner is paid off, revenue now is clearing up, momentum is building. We can say, okay, from this point forward, Tom, like now you get a piece of all this business. Correct. So it kind of went from no income to more of a kind of hockey stick once we paid off the book. And then, you know, my percentage was on that book and the recurring revenue. And can you give us a sense as to what that split looks like? You know, I know it's always a challenge for 
advisory firms just trying to figure out like what is a reasonable number to 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 split business, particularly in these kinds of scenarios. Like the firm bought it and paid it off, but they obviously can't serve it. Someone's got to be out and servicing the clients. The person who's servicing is the one that's ultimately going to grow them in the future. You want to reward the advisor for the growth. So like what kind of split percentage did you guys come to and how did you get to a number? Yeah, we didn't really know at first. And that was kind of what we're going back and forth on. And we all kind of, I asked other advisors that I've known that I've worked with in the past. And my partner asked other colleagues of his, and we kind of came to this 40, 60 in his favor. And then kind of, as we started going, if I brought on business, which I've brought on a decent amount just outside of this book, just from other sources, we were going to throw it back into our joint account, the, the, him and I. So I'm like, you know what, let's put this in favor of me and we'll just have breakpoints. So, you know, every, you know, five or 10 million I bring on, we'll up that percentage. So, you know, that's going to continue to go up. And as I bring business onto that joint account and, you know, they cover all expenses and that's kind of how we decided to, to do it. And it's, I think it's worked out really well. I think it's very fair. So as, as you grow the base with them, then your number can get from a 40% split to a 45, a 50, a 55. It, it, it climbs as you bring in more. Cause at that point, you know, the, he's getting a smaller percentage of a larger base. So the, the firm's revenue is still growing. They can cover the overhead and expenses of just having a platform to support you. Like that's basically the structure. Correct. Yep. Okay. Interesting. And, and so as you look at it now, you're, correct me if I'm wrong, about two years into the transition itself. Yep. It'll be just, just two years almost on the day. All right. And, and so how's it going? (laughs) (laughs) It's going well. I mean, you know, listen, it, it wasn't, it wasn't easy making the move and, you know, going from making income to almost no income. But, you know, the last, you know, called six to, to nine months has been tremendous, the growth just on, just on referrals alone. So it's, it's going really well. And to your point earlier, I mean, I still have clients that we took over who we still haven't even been, been able to get in front of. We've reached out to them, but there's just so many households to call on that I really haven't, I've been so busy with that. I just opened up a, a Houston location. So we have kind of how our firm structured. There's there's five of us advisors and we have six support staff. Half of them are up in Dallas. My partner here is about 30, 30 minutes south of Houston. And I just opened up a Houston location. So I had a, a girl who interned for me last summer. I just hired her full time to help out. And I'm building out an office space as we speak right now. I have a couple I have a CPA and a, a TPA in town that I've known for years who are partnering up with us. They're going to sublet some office space. So, you know, I, I know a lot of people in town from the from the wholesaling world and, you know, currently looking for a 401k advisor to, to join the team that I'm in talks with. So, you know, growth is good. We're looking to, to, to buy more practices. We're in the talks with a few other teams. And, you know, the one advantage that I have is I know everyone who's selling. Right. I have this like, I call it kind of like a black book. I, I would have that conversation in almost every meeting I did, you know, maybe the last three years of wholesaling is just trying to figure out, you know, who's growing, who's selling, not only for my own purposes, but also to try to match them up with other advisors. You know, that's how I would try to bring, bring some value as a, as a wholesaler is, 
I know who's looking to buy a book and I know who's looking to sell and try to make the connection. I to me, there's a whole other interesting angle to this around the subset of advisory firms that are are particularly acquisitive. You know, they're like they're looking to acquire, they're looking to acquire firms in their local market. And and the the challenge for most firms still ultimately comes down to you know, deal flow, like just finding opportunities of firms that might be willing to sell and maybe a reasonable fit and and figuring out where they are. That to me, aside from just the advisory business and serving clients and, and sort of growing organically that way, there's a fascinating angle to me around firms that want to acquire that actually bring on people with your kind of wholesaling background because you know everyone in the community and and who's doing what and where some of the opportunities are to be able to find them. Maybe not as a sustaining role because you know at, at some point you're your list of advisors to call on gets a little bit stale as you're out of uh, wholesaling for a while. But over the first few years of transition, the ability to help support matchmaking to find firms if you work with one that is looking to acquire is an interesting angle and opportunity unto itself. Yeah. And there's services out there that, you know, like Succession Link and others and you know, the problem is everyone's looking to buy. So I don't think they work really well. And, you know, I tell, I tell other advisors, you know, you can really lean on wholesalers for just that. And, you know, you know, give them, you know, I used to call funding ideas, give them ideas on what you're looking at. Don't just say I'm looking to buy a practice, give them kind of looking at the structure, demographics, location, size, you know, be more specific because there are advisors out there that are looking to sell or at least looking to try to slowly transition out, I think a lot of them just don't really know how to do it or have the conversation or really where to start. It's uh, it's an interesting angle of just if you're if you're looking for firms in your local market to acquire, and I would think probably p- particularly outside of the RIA realm, just because again, you can find a lot of data on RIAs if you want to look around or you can you know buy access to to databases like discovery data that you know pull all the ADVs and all the information and and you can at least find some of the firms but most platforms don't give a lot of breakout down to the individual rep in a broker dealer environment so if you want to know who's in a not in a broker dealer environment that might some point be selling getting ready to exit be quote unquote in play it's actually at least from what i've seen still pretty hard to find that in public databases and public information but there's a pretty darn good odds that your local wholesalers have met all of them 10 times. Yeah. <laughs> and know absolutely. exactly who they are. <laughs> so tell us a little bit more about just what it's like trying to start calling on clients and just doing this advisor thing <laughs> when you did the when you did the wholesaling thing for for 10 years. Like what do those conversations look like as you're calling on clients or you have to both say like, hey, we're the new firm that bought your old firm or your old advisor out and I'm the new guy. Obviously, you don't necessarily want to say it that way. Like I'm I'm the new guy. You just had a change. I'd love to come out and see you and find out what's going on. How do those conversations go? How are you queuing them up and and trying to actually get out there in front of people? You know, it's the, the the transition itself. I mean, I guess they can always go better. You know, we ideally in a perfect world, you want to sit down and introduce the new team and tell them, hey, here's a new advisor. Who's, here's who they are and what they do. But it's just when you have 400 households, that's not possible. So when you're calling yeah. on them, you know, when you meet with these 
they're very skeptical. They don't know kind of what took place, why it took place. And, you know, you're playing defense for the first 30 minutes. But I'll tell you, having a, a client actually want to meet with you is so nice and so different from the wholesaling when you hear no 99% of the time. So it really wasn't that difficult. It's nothing challenging. Mm. It's something that I've been used to is playing defense. You know, I think most advisors, when I used to call on them and, you know, they know why you're there, you're trying to sell them a mutual fund and, you know, you're guilty till proven innocent a lot of the time. So it really wasn't much different. So, and <laughs> I guess, I guess that's a good point. I mean, at the at the point you're calling on clients that that got acquired, even if maybe they don't have a tight connection to the firm and some of them don't want to meet or they're skeptical. And like, you know, even if you don't, even if you only get a 50% hit rate on being able to get people to, to meet with you and sit down with you, that actually feels a heck of a lot better than the one or 2% hit rate sometimes <laughs> in the, in wholesaling on advisors. Like, wait, I only get a 50% meeting rate. Like, Darn, <laughs> that sounds like a great improvement. Yeah, it, it was. We had we had very little attrition. I mean, most clients understood, and also most clients, you know, like I said, they they haven't met with an advisor in, in a while, and actually, a lot of them almost felt guilty, like it was their fault. So it was really interesting the the conversations, and they varied a lot, but for the most part, you know, you have to explain kind of what happened, who we are, who I am, what took place. Most were fine, you know, and as long as you provide good service, which which we have. They've been happy. So talk to us about your view of the wholesaling world at this point. Now that you've lived the advisor side for a while, you you spent 10 years on the on the wholesaling side. So, you know, having actually been to the other side of the mountain, as it were, how do you reflect on the the similarities and the differences between the world of wholesaling and the world of financial advising itself? You know, the, the the biggest difference was when I used to go to a party, I would be out and it would be someone out of the business and I would run into a financial advisor. And this is going to sound so cheesy and corny, but you'd get so excited because your pool to sell to is so small. Your, your clients are financial advisors and you really get to be, be able to get in front of them. So when you run into one, it's super exciting. And that's how sad it is wholesaling. But what was different and what kind of shocked me is the pool of your clients is unlimited on this side. It's just unique that, I mean, anybody and everybody could be a potential client. So you're just so set in your ways of, Hey, my clientele are financial advisors. That's it. And on this side, it's much different. So, you know, I, 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 I think in a way it's, it's, it's very similar having a message down, having a story, you know, being prepared, knowing and being educated on what you're talking about and, like I said, it wasn't much different from having a meeting with an advisor. You know, the the questioning is obviously a lot different and you, and you get thrown off with a lot of stuff you just don't know because you haven't been doing it, but, you know, you'll learn. And, you know, it, it really wasn't too much of, of a learning curve. Very cool. Very cool. And and so as you look forward from here, like having, oh, I, so versus I have to ask, now that you're wearing an advisor hat, any wholesalers calling on you yet? Oh yeah. Well, you know, the, <laughs> the, pro- the problem is I know the wholesaler. <laughs> so, and they, and they all know me and I you know I have, I have my group of wholesalers and you know, I, I obviously feel bad for wholesalers. I used to do it, but I'll tell you, it didn't last very long. <laughs> I thought I'd be a lot more sympathetic <laughs> and I find myself like you, I mean, you get inundated and it's crazy how many calls and, and emails you get a, a, a day. Yeah, no. And, and I, 
you know, I use the wholesalers for a lot, and it's not for for marketing. It, it's it's for you know, they do bring a lot of value added. I know what firms can offer what, and it's been you know, especially for you know, if we're looking to buy a practice, I have all the wholesalers out there trying to help us out for who's selling or who's trying to to join a team. So, you know, I, I keep in close contact with with all the wholesalers. So, this interesting point, you know, you said like you still use the wholesalers a lot, but it's not for marketing; it's for it's for other stuff. So, what do you find are the you know, now that you're living on the advisor side, like what do wholesalers bring to the table that's useful for you wearing the advisor hat, knowing all the stuff that they can bring to the table? What's actually the most meaningful and impactful aside from, you know, introductions to other advisors we might want to acquire or recruit? Yeah. You know, now that I'm kind of disconnected from that, that side of the table, it's, you know, who's bringing in, what, what advisors are bringing in money and, and what are they doing to do that? What, what ideas are they using? What are they doing differently? I know the good teams in town and, you know, they kind of do recon missions for me. You know, what are, what are they doing differently that I'm not doing? And just keeping me updated with, with different ideas that different teams are using, whether it's marketing or prospecting or wh- whatever it, it may be. I use them for that. I use them for referrals. I tell them all, I go, listen, I want three at-bats a year. You all know someone that has money. Send them my way. Just give me a chance. Give me an at-bat. And they do. Meaning like outright referrals of prospects. Yep, prospects. So, and I, one of my, two of my top clients today came from referrals from wholesalers. So I've used them, I've used them for that. I've used, you know, some of the firms have great value add too. Columbia's got Retirement Learning Center where you can pull up any 401k plan and learn how it works, what they can and can't do. And that's extremely useful for me when I'm meeting with a client and I can walk them through the in and outs of, their plan and their pension plan and is it and is it at risk? Is it frozen? And can they do a backdoor Roth? Can they do the after tax? So, just certain ideas like that. And then I also I don't know if, if I told you this earlier, but I, I started a podcast a couple months ago, and they bring me some great speakers and not you know portfolio managers, but just different outside the box guests that I can I can bring on, which which is a tremendous help for me. So the so you're running the podcast, but but they're helping you to essentially find guests that can come and join the and join the podcast. You tell them, hey, here's the t- kinds of topics or things that I'm interested in, and they're saying like, oh, well, you should talk to this person or that person to check this out. Right. Yep. Very cool. And and what's the and what's the podcast called? Your money momentum. And so, what's the what's the focus of the podcast? You know, the, the the idea of it originally was just to have a different platform to get timely and relevant material out to clients. We're getting more and more email bounce backs, and you know, fewer people open you know monthly newsletters. They think they're canned emails. So we're just trying to find a way to just get this information out 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 to clients. And you know, if if we get business out of it. If they send it to friends and we get prospects, that's great. And that's ancillary. But the idea was really just to start with just a different way to get in front of our clients. And it's just talks about everything and anything financially related. So so for you guys, the podcast was less marketing to prospects and more just literally another way to get in front of existing clients who maybe will be more willing to listen to something than read another email as emails bounce or go to spam folders who don't get through. 
Right. And, you know, and I think over time as we, you know, get word out, hopefully it does become more of a prospecting tool, but I think we just wanted to really just set expectations low when we've started this and to see how much time it would take. And it, you know, it takes me, I do it every other Friday and it takes about all in about an hour and a half to schedule it. And the podcast goes for anywhere from 30 to 40 minutes and it's really easy to do and it's fun. I enjoy it. So, doesn't cost much. It doesn't take much time. So we're going to continue to do it. And it's just, you know, all topics on financial, financial planning. What's the, like, what is the cost? Does it mean you, you, you've got someone externally that's helping to produce the podcast? Yeah. I call him our podcast guy. I don't know his exact cost. Pamela, who does our marketing, she's probably the best I've seen. She basically does all of it for me. I just schedule the person, get them in there, get them in here, or get them on the on the mic and do the interview. So, but it's 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 not expensive. So, so from your end, kind of values for wholesalers, it's it's introduction to prospects, it's introductions to other advisors that maybe you can recruit or hire or or, or acquire. It's Kind of the marketing and sales strategies. What are other advisors doing that's growing their businesses and working? It's introductions even to guests for the podcast. And then it's some firms like Columbia that have actually built helpful thought leadership resources for you. So they're Columbia's Retirement Learning Center and tools and solutions of that nature. Yeah, absolutely. And and we don't, I haven't done much marketing as far as doing events. So I don't, I haven't leaned on them for that. It's more just, you know, every firm, every asset manager, you know, has a different value add in my opinion. And I lean on them for that. And, and also too, for, for the funds I use, it's, they know the analytics that I like to get and they send them to me without asking when I need them to be sent. And you know, they also give me a heads up if I should be making a change. They they collaborate, they work together. So if I need, I'm looking for a certain fund, a certain category, I can send an email to all of them. And I know they're not going to just all send me the fund that I'm looking for. They're going to send me it if they have a good one. And if they don't, they're not. And it's just, that's what I used to do too with them. I The, the guys that I work with, we all worked together when I was wholesaling. So, you know, we get it. And that just takes a lot of work off of me. I don't want to focus on just, you know, the the models all day long. And so as you were looking at firms to to join and switch over to, I, I am curious to know more about what, aside from you know, having existing client base that you can work with to, to have a base to build from, when you had your initial list of at least five firms that you narrowed down to, what 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 makes it appealing from your end to pick firms or get it on the list? Like what were the drivers? Is it, is it size? Is it like channel RA versus BD large versus small business models? Like what, what were the drivers for you in, in deciding what firms were going to be on your short list? Yeah. You know, I, I think there is just, and I won't mention any names, but there is just some firms you just at a different level of advisor, more firms were more proprietary product driven, more firms would be, they were independent advisors, but they were the farthest thing from independent advisors. I mean, they were definitely employees. And, you know, I think it was just the, the quality of advisors at a couple firms was just very consistent. And I think that might have just, I had a bias towards that because I never, I never sat down and used the technology. I never sat down and did the trading. I never sat down and called the back office. So I didn't know those things. It was more driven by just my experience with a lot of the advisors that that I worked with and, and the teams and 
you know, they never complained about their firms. They've only praised their firms. And you'd have a lot of advisors out there that all they would do, you go to lunch and they would just, I mean, complain nonstop about how bad their firm is. So, and, you know, and my shortlist, I mean, I, I had a good amount of firms. I mean, truly, I wanted to do go RIA. That was the, the first thought. But, uh, you know, with our firm, Commonwealth, we're duly registered. And, you know, it's a great firm. I mean, we have had no complaints. And the guys that I've joined have only always said good things about it. And any advisor that I called on from this firm was the same. So that kind of narrowed it down to, to my short list. So I'm curious then what what was leading you in the direction of of Commonwealth originally and then or I was gonna say like what was leading you in the RA direction originally and then what what pulled you to the Commonwealth side? So RIAs I, I covered as part of my territory and you know, I, I feel like the RIA is just uh, there was a, de- a different level of sophistication that these teams had. They seemed to be bigger, just seemed to be more I mean they're independent by by design but could just they weren't held to any quota they had they didn't have to use certain products they were completely open architecture and i just really liked that they didn't seem to have much of any conflict of interest and you know my whole thought process was if i came to this side i wasn't going to do any commission business anyway so RIA just seemed to make the most sense. And again, I think a lot of my decision-making was just driven by my experience with the advisors at these firms. They just, they were just on a different level. Well, I guess particularly when you're, when you're living a, a wholesaling world, you, you see a whole other level of some of the challenges of industry conflicts of interest, or I guess really platform conflicts of interest of the advisors say like, look, you know, Tom, you're like, you know, your products are fine. I'd love to do business with you, but you know, my company only pays you, pays me a fraction of, to do business with your thing as our company's products. So I just can't afford to work with you. And like all of those indirect challenges that come up because of how platforms structure compensation that you don't see on the RIA side for the most part, because that's not how the businesses and platforms were built. You know, we all talk about the conflicts, but I would think when you are on the other end of wholesaling into it, it's a particular frustration for the conflicts of people that can't work with you and the appreciation of the ones that have platforms open enough that they can. Yeah, 100%. And I think, you know, going back, you know, three or four years, the DOL just completely missed it. They went after the wrong subset. I mean, they should have been going after the pay to play from the corporate level. I mean, some of these broker dealers, I mean, the, the amount you have to pay them as an asset manager to do business is is insane. I mean, there's there's asset managers that just say, no, we won't pay it, and they'll drop them from their list, and they'll make it very hard for the advisors to use them. So I, I didn't like that aspect of it, and, and it wasn't just one firm. I mean, there's a lot of firms that, that are doing that now. Well, uh, particularly as, as- – grids get squeezed like it's the it's the part that a lot of advisors don't realize is as payout rates have have kind of crept higher over the years you know payout rates off of grids have crept higher particularly in the in the independent bd world like the bds still got to make money to run their business so if they can't you know if they feel compelled to pay you more on the payout end the way they do it is they extract it from the asset managers instead it's it's you know, pay to play to be on the shelf. It's share classes that are marked up because the BD gets a cut. It's 
you know, TAM platforms or other asset managers that get marked up from what you would pay directly because the the BD gets a cut. You know, they 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 make it on the back end instead. If you just dissect some of the even some of the publicly traded broker dealers that are out there, like it's it's public information for the ones that are that release their financials. Like for a lot of BDs, almost fifty percent of their revenue comes not from the grid, but from everything that they get in some way, shape, or form on the back end or on the underlying, which when you think about as an advisor, like if if what you're paying them is only half of what they're making and the other half is is on the back end, like it leads to some interesting questions about what exactly is getting negotiated, where and how to get that number up. Yeah. And I, I don't know how much longer it's going to go on for, but I just, yeah. So I, I think, you know, I think the puck is going towards the RIAs. And I know you've had multiple conversations on this with your podcast. And I think most of us would agree with that. And I just think, you know, in five, 10 years, the landscape's going to look a lot different altogether. Yeah. So how do you look at that for the wholesaling world of how that evolves and changes in the, in the, in the coming years? You, know, you lived the 2010s of wholesaling from the wholesaling end, now you're seeing it from the advisor end. So as you look out, what's wholesaling in the next 10 years? You know, I, I don't know. You know, I started off at, at AXA uh, wholesaling annuities and, you know, that was back in 2007 and I made it through 2008. And then I said, okay, annuity wholesalers are never coming back again. They're dead going to the mutual fund side. And now they're starting to make a comeback on the annuity side. So I thought they were kind of dead in the water. And now you look at the mutual fund wholesalers and they're just the fee compression that you're getting squeezed out with the, with the ETFs. And I, I think what you can and can't do is being more and more restrictive. Budgets are coming down. Compensation is coming down. You're getting, having bigger territories, so you're traveling more. I mean, most of these wholesalers spend, you know, Monday through Thursday on the road. So, you know, I don't know what it looks like. I got to imagine it looks more base driven, base salary driven than this compensation because, I mean, I'll be the first to admit it. Wholesalers make too much money for what they do. It's just, uh, you know, it, it, some of these firms, you know, you, you just take off in, in sales and, you know, there's times where they have to cut your compensation halfway through because it's just, there's too much business coming through. And I don't think that's a healthy model for the asset managers because think about it. If you're paying wholesalers all this money for this mutual fund business that's coming in, and then two months later, all these advisors do a rebalance, the mutual fund business goes out. You already paid the, you already paid the wholesaler on it. So you're, you're losing money as a firm. And I think they're starting to see that. Yeah, I, I mean, to me, there's just an irony that like the wholesaling world itself to me was so built around the accumulation model, right? Working with accumulators when baby boomers were in accumulation phase. So all the comp systems were based on new flows because almost everybody was in accumulation phase. And now the majority of baby boomers are on the decumulation spending phase. And when you only comp the inflows and not the outflows and your average clients actually in net outflow, you end out paying for a lot of growth, even though your net growth is negative. <laughs> right. Obviously, still got to bring in the inflow to offset the outflow, but only paying the inflow seems, as you're noting, sort of increasingly problematic in this environment. Yeah. So I, I don't know what the lifespan is and all the wholesalers I talk to. I mean, that's the big concern. And, 
you just look at the numbers. I mean, we've been, <laughs> we've been in, you know, we averaged about 13 and a half percent over the last decade on the S and P and asset managers are having net outflows. I mean, what happens when we go through a bad market? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, are they all just yeah. going to be, so that's my concern. I, I don't, I think it's going to look much different than it does today. They'll still be around, but I think it's just going to be more of uh, Hey, we're going to pay you a base salary and you're going to be more of just a, a consultant. It might not be as, as sales driven, which I don't know if, if that if that's good or bad. So notwithstanding all these challenges around commissions, distribution, woes of wholesalers, you know, woes of broker dealers that are are doing more pay to play stuff on the back end. What got you comfortable with Commonwealth if you were talking about moving further away from that world? Like what what made Commonwealth different to you? You know, Commonwealth like I said, it was more just the, the quality of advisor. I know I they won't they won't even bring you on board and think unless you're doing three hundred and fifty thousand in production is the last number I heard. You know, I was able to join because I joined up with with, with the team. You know, I've been to their conferences. I've I've met. You know, they're, they're a private company. I like that. They're smaller, and they're more open architecture. Now they they you know just like any broker dealer, they are pay to play. But they allowed us to do the duly registered model with the RIA. So, you know, I, I also couldn't be picky either. You know, an opportunity came, so I had to hop on it. Sure. But, yeah, I, I've never heard anything bad about them, and it's been a really, really good fit so far. So as you're living this on the advisor end now, what do what do most wholesalers not actually understand about building an advisory business? that you, you can share with them from the other side of the mountain? That's a good question. I, I don't know what they don't understand. I, I think they do understand what it takes. And I think that's the reason why they, they haven't made the move is because they're just so, they're handcuffed. I think most of them just just can't do it. They can't, it, it's a big risk too, just giving up that that income, going to nothing. And, you know, hopefully you make it as an advisor. And, and when I talk to them, I let, I let them know that it's, it's really not that much different from from wholesaling. I mean, you, you know, you have to be likable. You have to be a people person. You know, you have to be able to. You know, one one good thing about wholesaling is you've I've met every type of personality I think known to man. You know, so there's no client that I meet yeah. with from like, oh, how do I handle this? I mean, I've seen it a million times. I can't tell me the lunches I've done with with advisors where it's like it's like pulling teeth trying to get them to talk, and it's like forcing conversation, and it's just. It's uh-huh. brutal, but it's it's trained me to because that I mean that's what we're in the people business, you know, we're in the service business, and I think that's that's half half the battle. And I think I think wholesalers know that. I just think that it's and, and I, I'll tell you, I get a lot of calls, and a lot of them want to make the move, but you know, they talk they can talk themselves out of it very easily. There's a list of excuses on why they don't want to do it, and you know, sometimes I don't blame them because you know they, they have families that they have to look after. So for wholesalers that do want to make the the transition, like what advice would you give them? So I, I always used to, I would, the advice I give to them is, you know, they know the teams. When you meet with a team or meet with an advisor, sometimes you just click and you, you say to yourself, you know, this is a guy with one that I would give my money to to manage or two, if I ever did want to make the move, I could see myself, you know, working with him or her because of, you know, personalities and the way they structure their business and, you know, et cetera. So I always say, approach it this way. 
talk to them, you know, where they're at right now. Are they looking to grow? Are they on cruise control? Or are they looking to get out of the business? And you, you kind of know which ones are, are looking to grow. And you just start having that conversation like, hey, listen, I respect you as an, as an advisor. I don't have many teams that I would approach this conversation with. I feel that we get along. We match on personalities. I, I really can't don't see much life left for me at wholesale. I want to make this move and just kind of leave it open-ended. You'd be surprised how many advisors, one, they're, you know, they're, they're honored that you're having that conversation with them and they, and they open up and they start asking the questions and you kind of just, you know, you got to take the baby steps and, and start slow because, you know, again, most advisors don't realize how much wholesalers make, not that it's justified that they make it, but you know, you have to, there, there's equity and there's income. And the problem is, is that most advisors don't want to give up equity, but you know, mm. the income doesn't make sense either. So you gotta, gotta find that advisor. It might be in the best way to do it is find a team that's looking to, to buy a book and do it the way I did. I think it's a win-win for everybody, unless there's an advisor that's looking to get out of the business and wants to start, you know, handing off clients or handing off equity that way, either way, you know, these, these, wholesalers need to know it's, you know, you, it's a sacrifice for sure. You're going to have to have low to no income for a couple of years. And, and how do you think about that financial transition? Just, you know, going from the income to not the income, trying to get comfortable with that, trying to rationalize that in, in the positive way, instead of you know, rationalizing and talking yourself out of it. Like how, how do you think about that income transition that you're still in the midst of now. Yeah. You know, for, for me, it was, it was work-life balance. I mean, I just, you know, money is, money isn't, isn't everything. And I saw that firsthand and, um, you know, there was a, there was a guy at, at AXA, I think I was at, maybe it was a Prudential. And he said, you know, I, I never had so little fun making so much money. It's a grind. And if, and if you're not happy what you're, what you're doing, and if you're not, you know, satisfied what you're doing, then you, then you need to make a move. And I'm, I'm okay. I don't, I would, wouldn't trade the income in for my happiness and my work-life balance for anything. I mean, I enjoy having my own schedule. I enjoy not having a, a boss looking over my shoulder, giving me a hard time. He, you know, looking at three weeks out of my calendar saying, Hey, I noticed Tuesday from, you know, two to five, you have no meetings. What's going on? And it's like, <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it's crazy. It, 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 it's brutal. And that's just something that I didn't want to do anymore. So I'm okay with, with the income because I know over time I'll build it back up and I'm building something for myself. And that's the best part, even though it's going to be a slow build, I know come January, it's not going to be at zero again. So what surprised you the most about building your own advisory business? You know, the, the, the business aspect of it was probably the biggest surprise. Like I said, the, being the advisor to the client, the meetings, nothing was really surprising. I kind of figured that's how meetings would go and, and, and all of that. It was more of just the owning your own business now. Like I said, I'm opening up a Houston office and, you know, built it out from a concrete slab and, just everything that goes into running a business, you know, I hired someone to training, training her and to just dealing with the everyday business aspect because I never had to do that before. I always worked for a corporation and I was always W2 mm. and I just had to, you know, go out there and, and do what they told me to do. So that was the biggest change and I like it. it it's just, it, it's an adjustment. You know, everything you do is on you. There's no one telling you what to do and all the mistakes you make fall back on you. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the uh, I joke sometimes. It's the it's sort of the double edged sword of of independence is you know when you're out on your own and, and building your own business, like you can you can make absolutely any decision you want. And the bad news is you have to make all of those decisions. Right? <laughs> they're they're all on you. <laughs> they 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 all all fall on your shoulders. I mean, to be fair, like. If that's not appealing for you, but you do want to be on the advisor side, like there are employee models, there are other structures out there. There's some other, you know, income and opportunity trade offs that go with that. But particularly for the folks, like if you want to be more of an independent and and all of that sort of control your life, control your destiny, build the thing that you've got a stake in, and, and there's a lot of cool about that, and you get to do it more or less any way you want because you're you're independent, you make your own decisions, but you have to make all your own decisions. I mean, literally all my own decisions, you know, right before this call, <laughs> I was, I had my, my, my headphones on. I was on the hold with Best Buy about the fridge that's coming. The lady walked in about the plan service. I got my assistant on hold with her back office. And I'm currently, I'm sitting on wicker chairs in my conference room because the furniture got delayed. It's like, I'm like all over the place. I have no idea what I'm doing. And it's just like trial by fire. I mean, it's great, but you are making all of the decisions. <laughs> Welcome to entrepreneurship. Yeah, exactly. So it's, I kind of went just on the complete opposite end. I, a more natural progression probably would have been to go to, you know, one of the wirehouses or some kind of employee channel and baby step from there. But I kind of, I kind of knew I wanted to go this route anyway. So I said, you know what, I might as well just, just do it. And uh, it's been a great, great learning curve. So what does a typical week look like for you at this point? And Maybe even how do you contrast it to what a typical week looks used to look like in the wholesaling world? Yeah, so you know, one thing that I that I picked up from just you know teams that I worked with that I thought did things really well is they all had processes in place and they were very very structured and organized. And I got to structure my week very similar to how I did with wholesaling. Monday is my office day. I try at all costs to not see clients or really anybody unless, you know, if they need to see me, that's fine. But Monday's my day. That's by most my most effective day. It's for me to catch up on anything. It's for me to schedule, do follow-ups, do all the administrative stuff. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday are my client meeting days, and I try to pack those out as as much as possible. And then Friday is kind of my my flex day. If you know, taking trying to take prospects out to, to golfing. You know, one thing I started doing with with clients that have referred me a lot with you know certain companies is taking taking them out to lunch and asking them to to bring some colleagues along and just kind of going over their plans and what they can and can't do within their actual four hundred one k plan. That's worked out really really well. And I also have clients that are you know outside the state that that I travel to and. You know, I use that as my travel day. So, and then I'll I'll do meetings on Saturday too. So that's kind of what my typical week looks like. And you know, it varies as far as appointments that I have on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I usually have at least one, but I could have you know four or five in, in one day. It just it just depends, and they're kind of all over town. So it's it's funny because I'm driving a lot to meet people at either at their homes or for lunch or somewhere just not right in the Houston area because, you know, I don't know how well you know Houston, but from, you know, tip to tip could take you two hours. You know, it's it's massive. So I have clients all over the place. So it's kind of like wholesaling where you, you set meetings, you set an hour in between and you drive from one office to the next or in my case, one house to the next. <laughs> but I guess the distinction is pretty much all your 
travel for meetings on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays now is the greater Houston area, not all of West Texas, all of Texas, all of multiple states, depending how broad your your territory is. I mean, it sounds like kind of similar meeting cadence, but not as much road time because in essence, your quote territory is is a lot narrower now because you're not only calling on financial advisors, you're calling on anyone in the greater Houston area who might be a prospect, which means you don't need as big of a territory. Yeah, I went from doing about 30,000 miles a year in the car to about 12. So yeah, a <laughs> lot better and a lot, a lot smaller. <laughs> so what's what was the low point of your career so far? Like I, either on the advisor side or on the, the wholesaling side? You know, it, it was probably on the wholesaling side, you know, it was during my best year ever too. And that's where I knew there was this, a structural issue, you know, having my best year earnings wise. And I'm just, I'm just miserable. And I, I don't know what it was, if it was just added up and just the travel and I don't know what it was to be honest with you, but it was probably in that hotel. <laughs> I mean, it, it probably was just mm. looking at that ceiling, just like, what am I doing? And you know, there, there was just towards the end, there was just so many advisors that I'm just, I, I didn't want to meet with, you know, but I had to because it was, it was my job and it was just forced conversation. I just, it just kind of grew on me after a while, but I haven't had any really low points on the advisory side just because I kind of, I, I kind of expected it. I mean, I set my expectations really low for, for income and that helped, you know, I really planned on making like $0 for two years. So Obviously, I made something, but that helped tremendously. If I had any expectations of making, hey, I'm going to bring on ten million in the first year and twenty in the second, I would be, <laughs> I would be rethinking my decision. So, the low point was was definitely wholesaling, which is unfortunate too because it gave me a great career, put me where I'm at now, and I truly did love it when when I started. But just I, I just couldn't do it anymore. So, anything that you wish you'd done differently as you did make this transition? Like any anything you know now you wish you could go back and tell you from three years ago in that uh, hotel room when you started thinking you were going to make the shift? You know, it, it's probably the first time in my life where I've looked back and said, I, I, I don't think I would have done anything differently. I mean, it, the only thing I probably would have done differently is it's just done it sooner. And, and I was thinking about it sooner. But the problem is, is I didn't find the the opportunity. And I'm glad I waited because I, I lucked out with the team I joined, the guys I joined and the deal we we did together. Everyone's happy. It's been super successful. And, you know, there's not much I would have done definitely looking back. I, I think, the, I mean, the one thing we would have definitely done, I think as a group was the transition, buying the book. I think all parties involved would have done it differently, but I don't know how different you would have done it just because of the mass scale of, of clients. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So as we wrap up, this is a a podcast around success and and you know one of the themes that always comes up is just the the word success means different things to different people. Sometimes changes for us as we hit certain goals and then decide we want new and different goals. So, you know, you, you had this great career on the wholesaling side and 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 good income, but all they didn't decide that was scratching the itch for you. So as you look forward now, how do you define success for yourself? Yeah, you know, 
I was trying to prepare for this question because I know you ask it and I couldn't think of anything clever to say, but I don't think I need to say anything clever. I truly believe that success is just is is being happy at, at what you do and it's not about it's not about money cuz waking up every day really miserable not wanting to get out of bed dreading wholesaling was just not something I want to do. So success is if you're not happy with the people that you're working with, with the company that you're working with, with the industry that you're working with, you know, make a change because in the day life's too short in my opinion and it's not worth it. So my success probably like most is just good work-life balance and and to be happy. Well, I love it. I'm I'm glad the transition's gone well for you. As uh, you know, as we said, I I suspect there are other wholesalers that are suffering from some of the very similar challenges and and difficulties in the industry right now. So hopefully this is helpful food for thought for them as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you've personally helped me out a lot on on the podcast and, you know, more importantly, your your participants, I've gotten some really good stuff from them. So like I said, the pleasure was all mine. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, Likewise. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for joining us. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.